This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Normally, I don't start with a personal anecdote, but uh, I, I, with three guests and mail to get to, I wanted to make sure I can finish telling the story because I think you'll find it mildly amusing. So, my friend Al uh, came to dinner yesterday with his wife, whose name I could not 100% commit to. So my wife sends me to the grocery store and to the fish store with a shopping list. So let me go to the fish store first because this way if I only have a finite amount of available credit left on my credit card, at least I can get the main portion of the meal. So I go to the fish store and uh, purchase the uh, wild salmon. Great. Okay. Carmine and I go to the grocery store. We go in there and he's delightful the whole time until we get there and he says – Push, push. He's, he likes to push the grocery cart, push the shopping cart. And I said, all right, buddy, you could push, but I have to help. I have to help steer. No. He wants to push it himself. And I, I said, bud, no, you're pushing it into people, and you're going in the wrong direction. We have a finite amount of food and a finite amount of time, and we got to purchase all this food. you got to go in the direction that he's taking. He would not hear of it. Would not hear of it, so he's crying and crying and crying. So I pick him up, and I put him in the front portion of the shopping cart. He's screaming. Screaming. So much so, it's one of those things where everybody else in the grocery store is looking at me. He's that kid. He's that kid. I'm the kid. I'm the father of the kid with the screaming child. Everyone else is looking at him. I see my neighbor's grandmother, my neighbor's mom there. She comes over, and I was totally distracted with him. I barely even noticed it was her. She said, oh, I'm going to tell Luca you were crying. Did nothing. Did nothing. So then we're wheeling him around, and I feel so bad for him, even though he's being a brat. I'm wiping his nose, and I I say, bud, bud, uh, uh, just calm down. Not calm down. He's going, and then he says, when he wants to be picked up or held, he says, hold you, hold you. Um, he So I said, okay, but I'll hold you. So I said, let me hold him as I push the shopping cart. And then I hold him. I get him out of the shopping cart, and he says, push, push, push. It was just his plot to get out of the shopping cart was for me to <laughs> hold him. And I I said, bud, no, I can do it with you. You can push it with daddy. No, won't hear of it. I put him back in the shopping cart, and he goes right back to screaming. Right back to screaming. And we're getting all our things, and I think we're doing a pretty good job here of getting all these things. And they sell these little cars in the grocery store. My son is obsessed with cars. Any kind of car he loves. He loves toy cars. They're his favorite toys to play with. He'll just sit there for 20, 30 minutes, just play cars by himself more. And, you know, he loves it. So he see now keep in mind, we've got two toy cars in our car that we just exited. 
but he sees this whole barrel full of matchbox cars. And he stops crying. And he says, car, car, car. I said, but absolutely not. One, I'm not going to reward this sort of behavior. Two, you have two cars in our car, and we have dozens, maybe hundreds of cars at home. You also have cars at your grandparents' house. No more cars. No. So he goes right back to crying. And I'm getting all these things, and he's crying so much. Real tears. And I said, bud, and he's just saying, car, car, car. And I said, bud, no. And he starts crying louder. And I think to myself, all right, what's more valuable here? My quality of life for the next 15 minutes and the fact that I don't want to disturb everyone else in the grocery store or holding on to the principle that we're not going to negotiate with emotional terrorists. Okay. I said, let me get him the car. All right, bud. Hold on to this car. We can't open it yet. You got to just hold on to it until we pay for it. Well, that went over like a lead balloon. So he just says, open, open, open. So I open it. Open it for him. Not proud of it, but I open it for him. And I hold the container so that we can pay for it when we exit. We finish shopping. He's now delighted. He is such a good boy. He's contributing. Um, he's pointing at things. Um, you know, we have to. Well, ice pops was on our list. Carmine, what kind of ice pop do you want to buy? Did you do you, you want to buy this ice pop? Oh no, no. Do you want to buy that? Hey, he's delightful. Delightful for the whole rest of our trip. And then, by the way, it was packed. I guess everybody's doing sh- Thanksgiving shopping. We get to the front. And the only thing available, really, without a significant weight, were these self-checkout lines. I can't stand these self-checkout lines. One, I I feel like uh, the reason that I'm paying good, paying for goods, is because I want someone to do the work of the cashier process for me. Also, I feel like I'm saving someone's job by patronizing the cashier lanes. But I think uh, either they didn't have any cashiers or there was maybe two and the line was out the window. So I go to the self-checkout. And always I have such a hard time with this because I never I never do the grocery shopping. My wife does it 90% of the time. So I can never figure out these self-checkout machines. So somebody has to has to come help me. And it's it is embarrassing because everyone else can figure out how to work these self-checkout machines. It's me. And an 85-year-old lady who can't see with macular degeneration. We're the only two people that somehow can't figure out how to work these uh, these self-checkout machines. But Carmine's content. All right, okay. We finally make it out of there. And we go home. My wife's finishing a call for work. Now the clock's ticking. Clock is ticking. It's now about 20 after 5. And Al and his wife, who is heretofore being unnamed, I think it's Gio. She is uh, so far unnamed, and my wife just keeps asking me, what's the name, what's the name, what's the name? And we keep going, and now my wife finishes her thing. I am preparing my famous salad dressing at this time, which is a secret that was passed on to me by someone that hosted a dinner party that I went to. This is the world's best salad dressing. I'm not going to tell you what's in it in case I ever have to make dinner for you. So I make the salad dressing, and one of the ingredients in there is garlic, okay? I make the salad dressing. My wife finishes her call. And now here's what I've done to figure out the 
name of my friend's wife. I charge my old mobile phone and I go through the every text message that I've ever had with this guy going back years trying to find an instance of him referring to his wife. And sure enough, I am pretty sure I find a conversation in which he says her name is Giovanni. Now, I remember Giovanna. Am I – Is I, so what I'm thinking is he sent me that as Giovanna and auto text. You know how phones do that. Corrected it to Giovanni and then later it refers to it as Gio. So – my wife comes out. She's, you know, not, not frazzled, but she's in a hurry because, you know, the clock's ticking. She's still got to p- prepare all this salmon and everything else. And she comes out and she says, what are you doing on your phone? She's giving me all sorts of instructions. What are you doing on that phone right now? I said, I'm trying to research Al's wife's name. And she said, all right, well, I'm just going to ask her her name. I said, no, don't do it. I'm telling you, her name is Gio. And she says, no, Gio is a man's name. I said, her name is Gio. Believe me, it's Gio. So I'm confident with that. She says, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're confident. I said, I'm confident. And she looks at the salad dressing that I prepared, and she is so unhappy with it. She says, where, you know, does this garlic look minced to you? And I said, well, we don't have a garlic press. It's the best that I could do just by hand. And um, she says, and there's this, you have stuff in here that's not even garlic. This is the paper you know, it's not really paper, but it's the holder of the garlic clove. You always do this. I don't understand how you do this. You would fail every home ec class there is, every cooking class there is. So she's picking out this thing that is not supposed to be in anything with garlic. And she's asking me the question, do you ever go to a restaurant and see this stuff in it and thinks, boy, that really tasted good? And I said, I don't know. You just go. And she said, you know what? I'm throwing this out. I said, no. Now, meanwhile, I did put a lot of effort into the salad dressing and a lot of different ingredients. I said, no, don't throw it out. She said, all right, well, if you want to continue to try to chop up this garlic more, even though it's now in the dressing, be my guest. So that's what I'm now doing. I am now chopping up garlic that's already in salad dressing into smaller and smaller pieces. Finally, I get there. And she said, all right, okay. Now, um, where is the asparagus? And uh, I said, I didn't see that on the list. I said, she said, don't you remember we had a whole discussion about asparagus? That was going to be our side. I said, honey, I didn't see it on the list. And uh, I said, all right, I'll go out and get it now. She said, no, no, it's going to be okay. We can just do it with the salad and the potatoes. I said, no, 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 no. Let me go out and get it now. There's a market, a fruit and vegetable stand right around the corner. It's kind of like a bodega right around the corner from where we live. I'll just run over there. It's a little bit of a ripoff, but it's okay. It's conveniently located. I'll run over there. I'll get it. So I bring Carmine with me. And now it, it is 540, right? And so we're, we're very close to the arrival time of Al and a person who may be named Gio. So we go. I go into this fruit and vegetable stand with, with Carmine and the, the store, and I pick out three bundles of asparagus. It didn't look great. But I figure, I don't know. I'm in a hurry. They all look kind of wilted. But, all right, I'll, I'll get it. So I get these three bundles of asparagus. I bring it to the counter. This woman, who clearly didn't speak English, she says, she holds this as if she's never seen this before. I mean, this is not a store that sells that many things. 
she's holding this asparagus as if I've just handed her an alien artifact. And she says, and I'm not sure if she was talking to me or her coworker. Honestly, I'm not joking in the least. She says, do you call this asparagus? I said, yes, I do. And so she says, all right, hang on. She's searching on her computer, presumably for the price of what the asparagus is. She can't find anything. She goes to the back and confers with the manager or somebody else that works in the store about they have a whole asparagus discussion. And she comes back to the front and she said, all right, it's going to be $12. I hand her the $12. We leave. I bring the asparagus home. And now we're it's five to six now, but I'm feeling good. Oh, on the after we leave the store. After we leave the store, I'm carrying now asparagus and a smoothie that Carmine and I are sharing and presumably one of Carmine's cars. My hands are full and I'm carrying Carmine. And it's now dark because we're now in an era where it gets dark at 3 p.m. practically. And so I'm opening the car door. I'm getting ready to put Carmine in his car seat. And I put him down next to me on the sidewalk as we're entering in the car so I could put down the asparagus and everything else that I'm holding. What do you think this kid does? He runs away. He runs away. And he is fast. So he starts sprinting. Keep in mind, it's now dark. And now I have a two-year-old, almost, sprinting up the block on Richmond Avenue on the sidewalk. And now I have to go chase after him. So I throw the things down. The car door is wide open. I'm now chasing after this kid who got really far ahead. At least a dozen feet. I turned a corner. Uh, people are looking at him. Who is this two-year-old that's running around in the dark? So I scoop him up. I, I, and I'm calling him. I'm saying, Carmine. He's just ignoring me. Keeps running. And, and I, I scoop him up. And he could tell that I was going to be angry with him. And you know what this kid does? This is what a politician he is. He, I, I, he sees in my face that I'm frustrated with him for running away and not listening to me. He says to me, I love you, and then he gives me a kiss. Now, obviously, I can't be mad at him after he does this. All right, all right, let's go. So we we go home and uh, have a delightful dinner with Al and his wife, Gio. I was totally vindicated with her name being Gio. Love that. And we have a nice couple hours together. And they brought a a cake, very nice cake, but it's cake enough for a dozen people. There are four adults and one two-year-old. So we have the dinner, we have the cake, and there's still about three quarters of the cake left. Now, I'm not that fond of cake to begin with. This is a nice cake, but I'm not that fond of cake to begin with. And especially, we really don't have any room to store anything. So I say to Al, Al, take this cake back. Please take this cake back. She says, no, no, we're driving to Virginia tomorrow. You guys have it. Enjoy it. No, 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 please. Please take the cake back. I said, no, 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 you guys have it. I said, okay. So Al and his wife leave a delightful visit. And uh, Rachel says, what are we going to do with this cake? And I said, perfect. It is my colleague Rita Cosby's birthday. We got a card for her. We, she always puts so much effort into everyone else's birthday. Let's let's bring this as her birthday cake. And she says to me, you're what? going to try to present 
a half-eaten cake as her birthday cake? And I said, no, I'm going to try and present a one-quarter-eaten cake as her her birthday cake. So uh, she said, all right, whatever you want to do. So then I'm at work now, and we agree, everybody that works here, at around the time that we're going to do this, and we have candles here, and I have a a cigarette lighter or a cigar torch, I think it is, that I purchased. I don't know where from, because I'm presuming a cigar store, because it's a nice looking cigar torch. Wherever I purchased it from, it cost me fourteen ninety nine, fifteen dollar cigar lighter. So we put a cake. Here's what I do: I get a slice of the cake to bring it in to Rita, who already had, I think, three cakes. I mean, that other people had gotten her, including one very nice radio cake. And I said, all right, we'll light this, we'll light this candle and present her with one slice. So this way it doesn't look like it's a half-eaten cake. One individual slice. And I can't get this cigar torch to work. And then I realized this is the cigar torch that I can't figure out how to operate. So somewhere along the line, I paid $15 for a cigar torch that is so complicated that I can't figure out how to make it light. So I, I apologize to Rita. I'm sorry. We couldn't figure out how to light the candle. So we, we sang happy birthday to her without her being able to blow out a candle. But she appreciated it. She appreciated it and uh, seemed to enjoy the cake. Her you know, longtime companion had a, had a slice as well. So it was a, a fun a fun day. A two-year-old would have been able to figure it out. But albeit a stressful day, in part because of two-year-olds. So that was today. Um, comments? It's unbelievable. Questions? Thoughts? 800-848-9222. We're going to talk about the JFK assassination uh, and a new book that's been written about it. Uh, a, a novel but that has many elements of truth in just a minute. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, did you try any of the many cakes that are here today in Rita Cosby's uh, honor? I have not yet, but I, I do want to try the cake that you left. And I will try the other cake. It, yeah, it is good, I must say. And I'm not a cake guy, but it's a, I think it's a strawberry double leche. There is strawberry in it. But it's not. It looks like a strawberry shortcake, but it's not. It's a it's a double leche cake or something is what they call. It. It's from a very popular bakery, and it was good. I think you're gonna like it. Um, Christian, did you try any of the uh, any of the Rita Cosby cakes? Yes, I did actually. Uh, I tried the one that she had here earlier for her birthday, and then the one that you brought in. Oh, so. you tried both? Yeah. So what did you think? Good. Well, the first one was a little too sweet for my taste, but the second one was actually pretty good, Frank. See, I must say. And again, I take no credit for this cake. It was Al. Uh, this was the original Al from Manhattan that used to call me, not the one that calls it Al from Manhattan now. But he he knows his stuff, and it's from this fancy bakery, but it's like an old school bakery. And uh, he basically said that it's not too rich, and that's kind of my style of cake to the extent that I have a style of cake. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I for honestly, I don't know how to get this. Cigar torch working. You know why? Made in China. That's what I get for paying $15 for a product that was made in... Uh, Love you, but lay off the schnapps. In, in China. 800-848-9222. Also on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Fan. That's uh, facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. Uh, Robert's in Suffolk. Hi, Robert. Hi, Frank. Uh, there were... 
some questions that I think you should have asked your guest about COVID. All right. Well, what were they? Okay. Uh, what about the blood supply being tainted by the spike protein from the vaccines now? You know, I'm not. I'm not hip to that. You're going to have to educate me on that. Uh, the blood products that are in the the blood supply, including plasma, fluids, whole blood products, platelets, they're contaminated with the spike protein from vaccinations and boosters. Yeah, I, I am not up on that. And I, I, you know, I was vaccinated and I give blood regularly. So I guess I'm part of the tainting problem. I haven't heard anything about that, uh, Robert. So I couldn't have asked him about it because it is, I'm not sure what tainted blood being donated to someone that's in need of platelets would actually do. Maybe give them immunity to uh, some diseases or something. I don't know. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, I want to say two things. First of all, I believe Jeffrey Lichtman uh, is, is afflicted with uh, partially with Trump derangement syndrome because he's holding Trump up to a standard of perfection that he's not holding anybody else up to, okay? That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is, I don't know if you realize it, uh, um, Frank, but you got a very spoiled, manipulative child on your hands. And what bothers me not so much as his playful running away and then kissing you and saying "I love you" is 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 when he doesn't get his way and he screams, which we were treated to, of course, a sample. Uh, but uh, when he, when he, when you put him in the wagon and he's stuck there. Then he starts screaming. That That's a symptom that this kid is very, very spoiled. Well, Larry, look, as much as I'd love to be righteously indignant and uh, annoyed with you for insulting my two-year-old son that you've never met, I, I you know, maybe you're onto something. I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think um, maybe there are some elements of that, but I think it's more of being two. I mean, at, at two years old, I don't know that you necessarily have uh, – things like patience figured out yet. I, I don't know that you have a sophisticated degree of emotional intelligence. I mean, I think they call it the terrible twos for a reason because now I say this with as someone with very, very little parenting experience, one child for two years, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I think at two, you tend to be prone to these emotional outbursts so I think it's a little too early for you, as you've done with this child that you've never met, Larry, to be uh, kind of writing him off as uh, as spoiled. But look, you might be right. I don't know. I have no idea. I hope not. I don't think so. We would try to, you know, he's very polite. He always uses his manners when asking for things. Always says please. Always says thank you. But, um, you know, uh, it, I be, what am I supposed to do if he's crying when he's in the thing? I don't know. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We're trying to do a lot of uh, JFK stuff this week because tomorrow is the sixtieth anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. So we're going to get into it with a very talented writer who has made a murder mystery novel, essentially with the backdrop being the Kennedy assassination. Tomorrow, I'm working on setting up a debate. I don't want to jinx it, but I have some good people in line that we're trying to get together 
tomorrow on uh, on that front. Uh, 800-848-9222. You can also email me. We're going to read your emails on the air tomorrow, uh, next hour, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Uh, coming up in a moment, we will talk with Tom Avatabile. Avatabile. Avatabile? Avatabile. I always just call him Tom. We'll find out if it's Avatabile or Avatabile. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Tomorrow is the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination for reasons that um, that we've gone through. People are still very interested in this event, uh, it, which really does sort of mark a change in everything that happened after it when it comes to American history. It also serves as the backdrop of a fascinating story written by a great writer who's also something of a a renaissance man. He's a writer, a director, a producer, whole bunch of film and television credits to his background, huge background in computers and engineering. He's worked with the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology, and he's written uh, a whole lot of books. He's written novels, all also done a lot of other things. He is uh, really kind of like an onion. You pull back a layer and there another one is right there. Very pleased to welcome best-selling author Tom Avatabli, whose newest book is Ask Not, a JFK murder ri- mystery. Tom, it's great to see you. Great to see you, Frank, and thanks for that wonderful introduction. I don't get paid enough. I just realized <laughs> Yeah, you and me both. All right. Hey, um, you were in the fourth grade when JFK was killed? I was in Mrs. Tronconi's class and uh, came over to PA system, and she – in fact, I dedicated the book to her because uh, she explained to us what that meant. And uh, three days later, I wrote a, a composition, one of my first writing endeavors, and she gave me an A on it, and it was all about Kennedy. Uh, and she had taught us about it, and then I kind of regurgitated it. Um, interesting though, Joey Lanz was the kid in class who could lick the bottom of his shoe <laughs> and that was his claim to fame. And as soon as we heard about this, Joey Lanz said, we should bomb Russia. But of course, you in know, fourth in, grade, in fourth saying. grade, mm-hmm. but of course he had no idea who killed Kennedy. And today 65% of the American public still have no idea who killed Kennedy. So we're on the same league as Joey, you could lick the bottom of a shoe. <laughs> 
I, I want to talk to you about your new book, Ask Not, but uh, talk to me about the uh, the significance of the Kennedy assassination in altering the American mindset. As someone that remembers, you know, because in fourth grade you remember you know, what's going on, what America was like before and after. Well, you know, for a lot of people, and again, not it's not a monolithic group. For a lot of people, Kennedy represented uh, hope, youth. Uh, prosperity, a new frontier, his, uh, his inauguration speech asking for personal responsibility, that's not what you can do for your country, that's what your country can do for you. Um, it was a whole new paradigm. The old men were gone, and this young, vibrant, energetic man and his wife were now leading the country, and he had different ideas. Those ideas got him killed, by the way, but he had different ideas, and his idea was war was hell because he was involved in war. He was a, a hero of World War II. He knew the cost of battle, yet he was a silver spoon kid. you know. So he, he was straddling both worlds, and he didn't believe in Vietnam. He didn't believe in the Bay of Pigs. He didn't believe in the CIA being you know, the all-powerful thing it was. We didn't know any of this, of course, back in the – we were watching Leave it to Beaver. Everybody was happy. Things were good. Prosperity was up. The baby boom generation was growing up as I was a part of. The World War II generation was you know, settling uh, a lot of old scores with their, their lives coming back from the war and getting uh, Levittown and all that stuff was going. It was great. And then bang, we were all rudely awakened and – kind of rocked out of our existence into this gruesome reality, which memory kind of fogs it, but nobody saw the Zapruder film for 12 years later. So all we had was the, the assassination of a president, and assassinations in American history are far more frequent, and as, uh, attempted assassinations, far more frequent than anyone would think. Uh, even uh, FDR, they tried to kill him. Uh, so it's not far into our political uh, nature, but this young president, mm. the promise that he held for many people was the how could that happen? And then wrongly characterized as a lone nut, it seemed Oswald was the least significant among us who could take out one of the greatest among us, and that upset a lot of people that it was we were all that vulnerable. It seems that uh, the Kennedy assassination, along with Watergate, a decade or so later. Mm-hmm. It led to a new level of cynicism among the American public. Do you agree with that? I do, but there was a 12-year coma, okay? It's, it's not – it compresses when you think about it. But the first uh, discordant note to the – and what we're talking about really, let's just go back for a second, is the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission was a pseudo-governmental agency that was com- submit, uh, created by LBJ in fear of the Russians, okay, because he felt – if Oswald was seen to be a communist, that the American people would be hankering for a war with Russia, which would be nuclear. In fact, when he, when he strong-armed Earl Warren into taking over the commission, he actually had him crying. He said, you'll be responsible for the mm-hmm. death of 40 million people, you know, if this gets out that this boy was a communist, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. So um, – but nobody in America – we were living in a, a coma. In 1966, a rush to judgment came out, Mark Lane. That was the first real shot across the bow that maybe – we weren't being told the truth. Most Americans just went on with their life and said, great, okay, it was, you know, lone gunman, three shots, no conspiracy. And they were willing to accept it. Um, but then the ripples started. But it wasn't really until 75 or I think 76 when Robert Groden, who was a, a uh, someone I worked with on the screenplay back in 93, when Robert Groden went on the Geraldo Rivera show and showed the Zapruder film mm. for the first time, that's 
when the proverbial hit the fan. Because up to that point, uh, if you thought anything was different, you were a nut. And all of a sudden, here's this film that if you all saw the JFK movie, you know, back and to the left, back and to the left. Uh, that motion was not seen because uh, Life magazine bought the Zapruder film for $100,000. The next day, they spent 50000 more to buy the film rights to the film they already bought, which is kind of – it's a legal thing. But mm-hmm. they, they bought the film but not the right to show it. So they spent $50,000 to show the film, and they never showed it. It was Robert Groden who worked in a film lab that stole a bootleg copy and brought it on to Geraldo. And that started everything. So the real winter of discontent didn't happen until the Zapruder film. Interesting. Interesting. I'm going to uh, call up Geraldo. And uh, I know he's still very interested in that and see if he wants to chat about that uh, that instance tomorrow because I hadn't uh, put that together. But uh, you're right. That does make a lot of sense. Now, if it wasn't already painfully obvious by what you've said, why do you think so few Americans believe the official story of the JFK assassination, that Oswald acted alone? Well, like it is in my book, Ask Not, by the way, um, we have, uh, it's become the largest cottage, cottage industry in America almost, okay? A couple of hundred, maybe a thousand books, thousands of articles, TV shows, documentaries, YouTube's full of it. Here's the fun part about it, and I say the fun part about it. We all love a warm conspiracy theory. Okay, And we can all make one up because a lot of people believe the Warren Commission is nothing more than a conspiracy theory, case in point. Um, JFK and his brother RFK fired Alan Dulles from the CIA for the Bay of Pigs Mm -hmm. debacle, fired them. LBJ put him on the Warren Commission. He was the fox in the hen house. There were Mark Lane in 1966 came up with 60 witnesses that said, no, I saw it right there, right right, by the grassy (laughs) knoll, right there on the fence, this man with a gun. Nobody talked to them. Okay, the Warren Commission went to great pains to shun them from their report. The FBI lied to the Warren Commission. The CIA not only lied to the Warren Commission, but through Alan Dulles directed a lot of it. So we had a very simple uh, myopic view of the assassination that fit a narrative. And that narrative was Bill Moyers, before he was a PBS guy, mm-hmm. was, was an uh, LBJ guy. Right. And there's the Bill Moyers memo that specifically says, we must find that he did it. He did it alone, and there was no conspiracy. And that's based on the fact that if you listened, if you looked at KRLD uh, live uh, kinescopes, all the reporters in the room were like, was he a member of a right-wing group? He, met, he, he was part of a right-wing group? And when Harry, Henry Wade, the DA, says, uh, no, actually, he's, uh, he belongs to something called uh, Treat Cuba Fair, something like that. Well, interestingly enough, there's a clip where Henry Wade, he's trying to remember fair play for Cuba. But he can't because it's 1130 on the day of the assassination. And somebody in the room goes, fair play for Cuba. And Henry Way goes, oh, thanks, Jack. And the camera <laughs> cuts. And it's Jack Ruby in the basement of the DPD oh, wow. correcting Henry Wade on something that Oswald was involved in that nobody knew Oswald's name until three hours earlier. And what they – the fair play for Cuba was Oswald on the radio and TV in New Orleans, not in Dallas. How did Jack Ruby know all about the fair play? For- you got to send me that clip. That's that's interesting. I well, don't think I've I, seen that. I, nobody has because I saw it years ago. I cannot find it on the internet. Wow. I've talked to every researcher. Now, there is a shot of Ruby in there with a pad playing reporter. But the actual interaction with Henry huh. Wade, there is a video where Henry bumbles it again. 
And he says, oh, well, like I said earlier, but you can't find it earlier. That's wild. That's yeah. I, I did not know that. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Tom Avatabli. His newest book is Ask Not. It is a JFK murder mystery. You can get it on Amazon and uh, most other places. Books are available. And Or, or really simple, go to asknotbook.com. Oh, that is simple. Asknotbook.com, because you'll never spell my name. Exactly. (laughs) I was going to give the the web address based on your last name, but I I didn't even attempt. Asknotbook.com. So you started this in its current form, basically, in um, 1993. You Mm. were writing and researching a screenplay. What was the screenplay that you were writing and researching? The screenplay was called Ask Not, and it was based on the 30th anniversary. We're now at the 60th. And it was a story about a long-haul trucker who can't deliver his books to the Texas School Book Depository because the president's in town screwing up the traffic. Mm. So he stands on Elm Street with everybody else. And when the president motorcade goes by, bang, bang, a lot of pandemonium, he hits the dirt because he was in Guadalcanal. And as he's laying there, something hits him in the face, and it's a Polaroid, an old Polaroid, you know, the kind that you had to peel back to see? Sure. And he looks at it as a drop of blood on the Polaroid on the back. And he sees all of a sudden people rousting people, pulling their cameras, pulling their film and everything. So he puts it in his pocket kind of absentmindedly and he gets jostled by a, a Secret Service guy or a cop. And he says, what do you got in your pocket? And he reaches in his pocket and it's a Oklahoma speeding ticket. And the cop throws it on the floor. He goes back home to his little trailer. He's a cigarette smuggler on the side. He makes trips to Mexico and he gets the cigarettes without the stamps on them. So his trailer is full of them. He's got a Mexican wife and her mother living in the trailer. And he goes back and he opens up the Polaroid and he, he just he loses it. He's, what he's got is a picture of the guy behind the fence shooting the president, the president's head exploding, which is Mary Mormon took the, the only Polaroid we have, the only picture we have. But the next picture she took was right in sync with the headshot in my book. And that became uh, Mormon number seven, Polaroid number seven. But the, you know, how come the screenplay didn't come to fruition? It sounds like there'd be quite a, especially going into the 40th anniversary uh, 20 years ago, it sounds like there'd be quite an appetite for that. Oh, I have a funny story about that. Um, I raised a million dollars to make the movie from a guy. I knew I had this deal. He was a big Wall Street trader. When I went into his office, he had the fender flags. From the Lincoln Continental from Dallas. He had bought them for $20,000 in auction. So I knew I had a fish on the line. Great guy. Mm-hmm. But he, I knew he loved JFK. And here was a book, here was a, a movie, Ask Not. And he gave me a million, said he'd give me more, but I had to go find more money. You know, it was like the, it was like the Wizard of Oz. Right. Right? Bring me the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. Anyway, I made a deal with somebody in New Hampshire to hook me up with somebody in Georgia. The whole thing was a scam. Did you know there was a GBI? The Georgia Bureau of Investigation. I did not. I didn't either until I had to use those guys to try and get my money back. But I lost a lot of money trying to get the funding. Well, that's a shame. It Uh, is. It is. So that kind of fell through. Uh, And like my my character Cyrus says at 30 years, nobody cares anymore. So he feels he can sell this thing. And he sells the Polaroid. And from that point forward, everybody who touches it dies. You've written a lot of novels on a lot of different subjects. Yes. Uh, a lot of them are seem pretty true to life. Uh, things that uh, that could happen or that may happen. Some are a little bit more outlandish. Why focus on this as the setting for your story? I know you've been working on this in some form or another, at least since 1993, maybe even as far back as the fourth grade. Why focus on this out of all the stories you could tell, why this story? Well, actually, point of fact, uh, in June, RFK Jr. announced he was running for president. And one of the fun things he said was, I have proof that the CIA 
actually said, well, I have proof. I can't do him, but I have proof that the CIA killed my uncle. And when I heard that, I knew we were headed for a major confluence or perfect storm because the 16th anniversary is coming up. And here's uh, the nephew of JFK saying he has proof. His father was the attorney general. So I said, this is going to trend. This is going to start bubbling on that new thing called the internet. Mm-hmm. So I called my publisher and I said, listen, I've got a screenplay that's essentially an outline. Let me blow it up into a book. And he said, ah, I can't touch it for 10 years. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's crazy. You're cra- you know, but actually he said 10 months. Uh, so I found a publisher in Florida who said, I have no problem getting it out for November. So we rushed it into production. Mm. So the first book was Rush to Judgment in 66 by Mark Lane. I, then I rushed my little book into, <laughs> into production. Um, but it was based on JFK. And then something happened while I was writing. And this is really interesting, Frank. Uh, Paul Landis, Secret Service agent, who was assigned to Jackie's I was Jackie's just going to ask you about that, yeah. Wow, it's like we read this. Exactly. Same, same cheat sheet. Yeah. Um, Paul Landis, uh, Secret Service agent, for 60 years. And, folks, I have n- there's no explanation for this. But he came out and said, that guess what? He found a bullet on the back of the limousine, totally intact. Now, if you're an assassination person, you know about the pristine bullet. The Warren Commission called it the single bullet theory. The critics call it the magic bullet ooh, theory. And it's all because the Warren Commission worked themselves into a corner. But the first thing Walter Cronkite said to America was, three shots rang out in Dallas. How did he know it was three shots? Mm-hmm. We're talking 15 minutes after the assassination happened. There was no link. There was nothing like we had. Took him another 22 minutes to hook up to Dallas, their own affiliate. How did he know there were three shots? It was like the story was already set, right, for a lot of people. Anyway, the the whole idea was that the 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 commission was really backtracking, and they put themselves in a real box because we know the first bullet missed. If, you to, if you're in the three-shot theory, the first one hit James Tague, it was a bystander down by the triple overpass, overpass, mm-hmm. underpass, overpass. <laughs> and the um, – so they knew the first shot missed. The second shot they had to figure was the one which was the magic bullet because we know the third shot is brutally shown in the Zabruta film. It was the one that uh, hit the Kennedy in the head. Right. right. So – but they had seven human wounds through Kennedy, through Connolly, through Connolly's wrist laying in his thigh, and then, according to the theory, fell out of his thigh in the hospital, wound up on a pristine stretcher with no blood on it, and an orderly on his way to the bathroom found it. Well, some people do question uh, Paul Landis and that. A hundred percent, and, and, and I, I'm with you on that. And um, I just want to say, everything. there's only two things we know about the Kennedy assassination. The president's dead and Ruby shot Oswald. Mm-hmm. That's the only two things we know. Mm-hmm. Everything else is up for grabs because there was no documentation. So... Paul Landis, when he came out and talked about, he had two stories, an A story and a B story. The A story was the magic bullet. The B story, that's the next 60 years. That's the next 60 years of conspiracy theories. He said he found bullet fragments in the back seat. Freeze frame. Tom Wicker, New York Times reporter, 50th anniversary, Times Center in New York. Tom Wicker is, there's Tom Wicker, there's Dan Rather, there's Ike Pappas, all these people who are famous in news, mostly because on their sleeve is the stripe that says Dealey mm-hmm. Plaza, by the way. They're all up on the stage and they're doing their remembrances of that day in Dallas. And they're waxing elegant. These are reporters. These are writers. These are people who know English. So Tom Wicker tells this great story. Like what I remember, and I'm paraphrasing, what I remember most about that day was the bucket. There was this bucket and it had water in it. And a Secret Service was washing down the back seat. And when they squeezed the sponge into the bucket, 
it made the most incredible shade of crimson water. And the audience went, ooh. That was his memory. So at the end, they had questions, and I got up on the mic, and I was the last one. And I said, excuse me, uh, Mr. Wicker has just described, you know, the desecration of a crime scene. Has any of you ever worked a crime? And they shut my mic off. But here's what we got. We have a live, and I have pictures of that bucket outside Parkland Hospital, exactly as he described it. The Secret Service washed down the back seat at the orders of LBJ before the president was even pronounced dead. What Paul Landis says is he pocketed the magic bullet. Okay, take that for what it's worth. But he talks about two fragments in the back seat. The entire 1,600-page, 26 volumes of the Warren Commission only mentioned four fragments in the front and one under Nellie Conley's seat. There was no mention of anything in the back seat because those bullet fragments could have been washed into that bucket that Tom Wicker saw in that beautiful crimson water. Wow. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Tom Avatabile, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the author of Ask Not. You can go to asknotbook.com. So it is fiction, but there are a lot of elements of nonfiction in the oh book. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, tell me about the character Hank Larson. Hank, Hank I grew up really admiring airline pilots, okay? To me, most of them came from the war. They had kneels of, you know, nerves of steel. I remember when one of the planes went down, the last thing that was on the voice cockpit reporter was a guy went, damn. That was it. His whole life was just about to be extinguished, and he didn't curse, he didn't scream. He was constant professional all the way down into the ground. And I thought these guys were amazing. So I made, in 1993, I made my protagonist an airline pilot because the book is actually a transcontinental chase. He's chasing down all these artifacts and chasing down all these things about the Kennedy assassination 30 years later, 1993. So he needs to jump planes and fly all over the place. So as, a, as an airline pilot, you take a jump seat or you deadhead and, you know, you just get a lot of courtesy flights and stuff. So a major part of the logistics of the book have been absolved by the fact that he's an airline pilot. But he was also a war hero. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, his brother dies, and he his brother was you know heavy set, not not really a, a sports guy, but his brother was a the writer for like all these magazines like Playboy and We at the time, and he wrote all these stories about like uh, you know the the uh, aliens and the UFOs and uh, you know all the strange cult things, and of course the JFK assassination, which was fodder for these magazines. Uh, on that note, Tom, uh, stick around because I have to take a quick break, but in a moment. I'm going to ask you the million-dollar question, the question Ooh. that I think a lot of people have been very eager to hear your response to. Uh, Tom Avatabli, author of Ask Not, joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Fuel heads and her 
This is uh, Bruce Springsteen racing in the street. This is a uh, birthday bumper music selection by uh, Rick Klein, the political director of ABC News, who's a great journalist and uh, a tremendous Bruce Springsteen fan. And, um, you know, I think he is actually... No, he's seen Billy Joel at uh, Madison Square Garden this week, not Bruce Springsteen, but he's a big fan of both. My guest is uh, Tom Avatabli. He's the author of the book Ask Not. You could check out the book asknotbook.com. Get a, get yourself a copy. All right, Tom, the million-dollar question. Obviously, Ask Not is a fictionalized account of something that could have happened. Yes. What do you think did happen? God's honest truth with everything that you've raised, everything that you've talked about, thinking about this for the last 60 years, what's your best guess as to what the truth is about the Kennedy assassination? What I'm going to tell you is just as valid as anything else anybody else can tell you unless they exhume and reanimate Oswald and Mm -hmm. Kennedy. Just as valid. I've come to believe, and I did believe in the Warren Commission, but I come to believe that what Oswald said is probably true. He was a patsy. He was set up. There's some incredible stuff with George DeMorne Schilt, who was Uncle Georgie to Jackie, who put him in the school book depository. I mean, it's just, it gets wacky and crazy. But he was seen in the lunchroom at the time when the motorcade was supposed to pass by, by two women by, in the Warren Commission. George DeMorne Schilt. No, no, Oswald. Oswald. I'm sorry. Oswald was in the lunchroom. Now, he didn't know that Kennedy had decided to stop and shake hands, so the motorcade was delayed. It was supposed to be at the trademark at 1230. That's when he was shot. Well, then it should have passed by 1220, 1215. He was in the lunchroom. If you're planning, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're planning to shoot the president, you're not sitting in the lunchroom. So in 20 seconds, give me your best. Uh, He's a patsy. Yes. He, was, he was set up by the CIA that was working with the mob to get Cuba back. And they wanted to blame it on Castro. Tom Avatabli, the book is Ask Not. Check it out, asknotbook.com. Tom, we're going to have you come back soon, too. I'd love to. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it.